Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. So this morning, uh, as, we, as we're in uh, kind of celebrating the Lenten season and heading into Easter, we're in kind of week three of Lent. And um, week three of Lent, the focus is Jesus as Savior, how we desperately need a Savior and that Jesus is that Savior. There's this reality that every, every person who's ever lived has a deep need of some kind of savior. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that every human being actually chooses Jesus as their savior. But as you think this through, everyone has this feeling of being incomplete and that there's something that they need. Everyone is always pursuing something, whether it's a relationship, whether it's stuff, whether it's accolades, whether it's a title, whatever it is, but everyone is in need of something to save them, to make them complete, to bring them to a place of fullness. And because there's this reality that we have no, we, we, we just have no power in and of ourselves to actually help ourselves in that way. There's this deception that we can maybe work hard enough and then that will fix us, which, which people have worked their whole lives super hard and never found that to be true. There's this deception that we can dig deep enough in and of ourselves that maybe at some point we'll hit this thing that, that brings us completion. And, it, and it, again, it never does. This doesn't mean though that there's nothing good in us because at base level, every single human being bears the image of God. And that image is there whether you acknowledge God whether you have followed Jesus as Savior or anything else, that image is still embossed on our lives. And from that, we see fingerprints of God's goodness in people who maybe would never even claim Jesus, but we still see fingerprints of God's goodness because of the image of God that is stamped on us. But bearing the image of God isn't actually enough to cover or forgive our sins. And so we, even as this morning, um, have, have seen and even sung about and heard testimony about how we have this deep need for a savior. And so if you have your Bibles, we're gonna be in Ephesians chapter one, starting in verse 15 this morning. And as I, as I was like reading through, reading through that chapter, um, something just like really, really jumped out at me in the first few verses uh, that, that, I, that at least for me is really significant. I hope it's significant for you. And maybe it's something that maybe you've already thought a lot through, but, but, but I wanna share, share some of that this morning. But, but I wanna start reading in verse 15. Paul begins with this. He says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, he's writing to those believers in the church at Ephesus, and, and what's kind of cool, even about what he says right here, he, he, he's heard of the faith that they have in the Lord Jesus and their love toward one another. 
That's true of those in the church in Ephesus. I think that also is something that is characteristic of those in this room. That if Paul was, if someone was writing a letter ideally to us, they would probably re reference that they have heard of our faith in Jesus and our love for one another. Although our love for one another can always get better and improve. <laughs> but we share that with these believers that Paul's writing to in Ephesus. Uh, verse 16, it says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And now he describes the content of how he prays for the believers in Ephesus. He prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Okay, this is what stuck out. Paul prays for a group of people who he may know a few of them. He doesn't know them well. He spent some time in Ephesus, but the church is growing in Ephesus and there's people coming to Christ. So he doesn't know. And, and again, it's not, it's not as easy as like texting the people in Ephesus. There's, if you wanna get information or communicate, it takes a long time. So he doesn't know what their exact situations are. So those who are in the church in Ephesus, he knows that sure, there's probably some people struggling. There's probably some people who are doing well. There's probably some people who are sick. There's probably some people who are suffering. There's all kinds of things going on in the church Ephesus. But he says, I pray one thing for you that you would know God. God better. And that hit me because so often when we pray for each other, or sometimes when somebody asks, hey, how can I pray for you? And, and maybe you're not in the midst of a crisis that you immediately come up with something for them to pray for. Or if you want to pray for someone and you don't know exactly what's going on in their life and you don't know how to pray specifically for them, what hit me is what Paul says here. He says, here's what I pray for you. And I think he would pray this even if he knew the specific de details of what was going on in their lives. He says, I pray that through the spirit of wisdom, the Holy Spirit who resides inside of you, I pray that you would know God better. Not just that you would have more information about God, that, not that you would know more about God, but you would know and understand God's character and his faithfulness in his closeness in whatever you're going through. Like, it's just, it's so, how often do we, do we ask ourselves or wonder like, well, how can I pray for this person? Or sometimes there's people that we know are, are in a hard place, but they're not really a very sherry person. And, and so they kind of keep that to themselves. And, and we wonder how can we pray for them? And, and, and what would be better than to pray that they through the power of the Holy Spirit, know God better and deeper and wider. Because here's the thing, if you're struggling because you feel like it's maybe taking God too long to bring someone into your life and you're still single, and that someone's praying for you that you get to know God better and you actually understand and get to know God better, will that affect your struggle? What if, what if you're struggling in your marriage and you're having a hard time? What if people around you are praying that you would know God better? Would that affect your marriage? Because you are getting to know God better in that? What if you're suffering or sick 
or you're sad and you've got people faithfully praying that you would, through the Holy Spirit inside of you, know God better. Would that impact your suffering or your sadness or how you navigate being sick? What if you're doing well and you are kind of riding high and things are going well and, 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 and God is good and, and, and things are going well and someone's praying for you that you might know God better? How will that, will that affect the excitement and the, and the enjoyment that you're having? See, nothing that we experience that we can't experience falls outside of being impacted by me actually knowing and understanding God, his character, his faithfulness, his, his breadth and depth in my life better. Like that affects everything. And, and, and I think that we should take a lesson from Paul because actually I think praying for me that I would know God in that way better, more deeply, more understanding of who God is and, and because here's the thing, we all bear God's image. The only way for you to understand yourself and know yourself is by knowing God better because it's his image we bear. If I don't know the one whose image I bear, I will not have the understanding of myself and who I am and how I'm called to live. And so knowing God better helps me know him and helps me even know myself because I bear his image. Like to me, that's what an awesome thing to have the freedom and the opportunity to pray for one another that we know God better and know that nothing that, that you are facing, nothing that the person I'm praying for, nothing that you're facing is outside of being affected by that process. And, and, so, and so it's cool because he says, he says that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened. Again, this isn't just a informational piece that, that we want to know God or, or information that we want to gather up and say, yes, I know these things about God, but it's actually that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened. In other words, truth is not just intellectual, but it is motivational on a motivational level that we, we act on it because we know at the bottom of our, of ourselves that this is true and it is impactful and it's real. And, and even to the depth of our emotions, understanding and knowing God, intellectually and motivationally and emotionally, experientially. I, I, I think of it as like a full person bias toward obedience because we have such confidence in the God that we know who's been revealed to us. Because see, this is super important because we struggle with a number of problems in our lives. If, if I was to do no spiritual maintenance in my life, and even when I sometimes am doing spiritual maintenance in my life, I still end up at the end of the day with the spiritual dullness, not really looking at everything through the lens of Jesus Christ. I get off track so easily. And I think part of the problem is that we are so often unaware of the magnitude of the spiritual power set against us. Like we're so often unaware of that because it's so easy to just look at the things that are easy to blame and be angry with 
without recognizing that there, there, there is a very real thing that we cannot see that is dead set against us knowing God any better than we know him right now. And I think often we just have a lack of comprehension of what Jesus as our savior has done for us and what that means to us. We just, we just sometimes have a hard time really comprehending that in a way that it really impacts our life. And, and, and so Paul prays this. And, and here's, here's where he goes next, because this is important. And this is, this is that theme that we're looking at this week, that Jesus, our Savior, we cannot know God unless we have someone who brings us to God. And the only one who can bring us to God is Jesus Christ. And so Jesus as our savior makes it possible for us to know God in answer to the prayer of the, that Paul's praying for us. We can know God through Jesus Christ because he is savior. And so, and so Paul goes on and he writes this. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us to believe according to the working of his great might. And, and then he goes on to describe this, how it works in Jesus as savior. But there's, there's three things here that I think we wanna make note of. How Jesus as savior affects us what it does positionally, what it does in our lives. That, that, that first he says that Jesus, because of his salvation, because of what he's done, he says that, that we would know the hope to which we've been called. In other words, the hope to which we've been called is the hope that we can become like Jesus, that we can be forgiven, that we are forgiven. And, and here's what's interesting. The way he says that is it's in the, it's in the past. We have been called that we would know and understand the hope that we have already been called to, that we are already called as God's people to be like Jesus and to be Jesus, behave like Jesus in the world around us and bring his hope to those that we interact with. And then he says, the, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And inheritance in this context is not what we're going to get when we see Jesus face to face. But this is the inheritance of the fact that we have been brought into his family already. We are already heirs. We are not waiting for anything. We are already in God's kingdom. We are kingdom heirs with Jesus. And so that's who we are now. And then he says, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. We're not waiting to experience the power that comes from the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and his ascension to the throne. We already have that power working in us. And, and so, and so what, what he does is he kind of unpacks that, which just, he describes Jesus and his position and his role as savior. In, in verse 20, he says this, he, and let me back up to 19. He says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Jesus. So the same power that he worked in Jesus is the power that we already have. He says, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Here's the things that are part of Jesus as savior and a part of us as people who are already called, already heirs, and already have received power. These are things that we, we unpack, that, that this is the power in which we live in. The first thing he says is he says that God raised, the power that God raised Jesus from the dead. In other words, God has given us the power to die to ourselves and to the world and to live for the glory of Christ. If God raised Jesus from the dead, he can raise us from anything that we die to. So we already have that power. The second thing he says that Jesus seated at God's right hand, and listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter two, verse four. He says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So here's, here's what scripture says. It says that Jesus is seated at God's right hand. And then Paul also just gives us a little bit more information and says that we are seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So where does that put us? At God's right hand. Now, understanding that, that we are here and where you are currently seated, who is at your right is not Jesus. They might think they are, but they're probably not. But, but this, what he's saying when we are seated at God's right hand with Jesus in Christ is that we are secure and there's nothing that can change us positionally because of what Jesus the Savior has done. We are both here and we're dealing with life, but we are, our security is seated at the right hand of God in Christ with Christ right now. So there's nothing that can change that. The only things that can threaten our position as called heirs who have power is if something or someone could get into God's throne room, go through Jesus at God's right hand and remove us from that place. Is there anything in all the world, seen or unseen, that is capable of doing that? There's not. <laughs> Nothing can do that. So then he says, he is, he is also the power above and over all spiritual beings. He says, he says the principalities, powers, dominions, authorities, that he has a power over all spiritual powers. And so the reality is that they have no real power over us. And so we have nothing to fear and we have the power to die to ourselves and die to the world and live for the glory of Jesus. And then he says this, which I love this part. He says, he is head over all things and head of the church. Have you ever stopped and just actually reflected on what Jesus is head over, what that means? That he is head over all things. So I decided to, to start listing some things that Jesus would be head over, he has authority over, that, that do not have greater power than him and that they are under his feet. And it's not an exhaustive list, but it's a list that I came up with. 
So Jesus is head over all history. He's head over all human beings. He's head over all spiritual powers. He's head over disease. He's head over disability. He's head over weather. And that includes hurricanes, atmospheric rivers, fires, tornadoes, earthquakes, floods. He is head over business and industry. He is head over healthcare. He is head over sports. He's head over any inventions. He's head over media. He's head over internet. He's head over TikTok. He's head over military. He's head over governments, whether they are executed in presidents or kings or chiefs or dictators. He's head over all religions. He's head over education, whether it's elementary, middle, or high school, or universities. Jesus is head over all those things. And while for a time those things may be rebelling against his authority and his headship, we know because Jesus is savior and he died and rose again and ascended to heaven, that all of those things are under his feet. And even though sometimes some of those things get me worked up or unhappy or angry or nervous or worried or afraid, that's okay as long as I come back to this truth that Jesus is savior and part of my calling and the fact that I'm an heir to his kingdom and that I have the power right in the here and now that he has that I don't have to worry or be angry or be upset or be afraid of those things that have got me worked up because Jesus is head over all those things. And then it says he's also over, he's head over the church. And here's why head over all things and head over the church are separated in this, in this context. Because the church is unique and distinct from everything else. At no point is government called the bride of Christ. And I don't know, this is me talking. I don't know if, if government was the bride of Christ, I just see a divorce coming soon. But that's just, I'm not, that's, I don't know. I, I don't know if I should have said that or not, but. <laughs> the military is never called the bride of Christ. Anything that exists is not the bride of Christ, but the church alone is called the bride of Christ. He has a different relationship to his church and the church is the people of God. It's not an institution, it's not a building, it is the people of God. And the people of God are the bride of Christ. And so unlike everything else that Jesus is head over, he has a distinct and unique special relationship with the people of God. He's not head over the people of God in the same way that he's head over governments. Because being head over the people of God means that he is their leader, savior, king, and friend. I don't know if, if I look historically, I don't know that Jesus has been friend to many governments because they all eventually end. 
And, and, and so that's his relationship with us. And so knowing those things, that Jesus is head over all things and he's head over the church in a special relationship gives us the power to die to ourselves and to the world around us and live for the glory of Christ. And then when he kind of finishes, he says, Christ is all and in all things. And that's just this, this summary statement of, of God's rule is everywhere through Jesus Christ. And so in case the rest of these things didn't give us a, an understanding that we have the power now to die to ourselves and live for the glory of Christ confidently and boldly, then just so you know, Jesus is in all, he's through all and in all things and he's everywhere all at once, which gives us the confidence to live in the power to die to ourselves and die to the world and live for the glory of Christ. And, and, and you see these things that Jesus did and that we experience all make it possible for us to know God the way Paul is praying that those in the church in Ephesus would know God. It's because of what Jesus did that we can know God. And knowing God changes everything. So knowing, knowing God and knowing his character, knowing his faithfulness, how do we do that? How do we, like, we, we pray for people to know God, which is great, but how does that happen? Well, in one, in one way, obviously, it's what we've been talking about for a long time in spiritual disciplines. We get to know God through prayer and through fasting and through, through meditating on scripture, his word, which reveals things to us about who God is and through giving and through all of these different things, through, through serving and all of these different ways that we, we discipline ourselves to know God. But there's also something else that, that, that we can't ignore and we don't wanna miss. And that is we, we, we know God through experiencing who God is in our normal life in the things that we face every day. There are moments in my life that I have experienced God and he has is, he is, he is disrupted that moment with a very real moment of his presence that I will never forget. And he does that for his people. And hopefully this won't be discouraging or depressing for anybody, but, but I want you right now to think of a moment in your life where you experienced God. A moment in your life that maybe that you remember that you won't forget. And it might be something that, that is just so clear and, and, and just visible in, in, in your mind. It might be something that's kind of fuzzy, but, but like, man, I know I experienced something and I think it was, it was God doing something in me. But I was, I was thinking about this and very quickly I, I came up with three moments in my life that I remember with utmost clarity. Where, where God, where I experienced God and that experience led me to know him in a deeper way, the way that Paul prays for the, the believers in Ephesus. And, and the first of those moments that I remembered 
One of them was, was the beginning of my sophomore year of college and I was uh, on kind of a leadership team of, of, of people on, in, the, in the dorms and on the different floors. We had people who kind of, um, kind of were kind of uh, put together like prayer, prayer groups and different things like that and kind of discipleship. And, and so we, at the beginning of the year, we, were, we went and we went to this camp and we had this retreat with all of us together. And, and so the, week, the weekend was great and all that. And I remember it was, the, it was the, last, the last part of us being together and we had done some worship and we had done some praying. And kind of out of nowhere, there was, there was nothing, nothing special about it other than we were just there. And I remember very much all of a sudden, like I just got hit with this wave of a realization of how unworthy I am. And like, I just started to like weep uncontrollably. And that wasn't something that was like characteristic of me. And so I just started weeping and I just felt this, this feeling of how, experiencing how incredibly unworthy I am. But then in that moment, as hard as that wall hit me, it was this, after that, this same thing realization or recognition of how incredibly generous and gracious God is. And it was this moment of my life where I realized I could never express how grateful I am for what Jesus has done. And that same thing hit maybe four or five other people in that room. And so there's like four or five of us like in this cycle of, of kind of like weeping and then kind of laughing and praying and weeping and laughing and praying while everybody else was like cleaning up because we were leaving. And we were just there in this little huddle doing that and, and in this place. And I think what in that moment, I, I knew God better. Because in that moment, I, I knew God's graciousness, his kindness towards me. And the fact that I'm not worthy, but he doesn't care. And the second, second moment that I remember is uh, a few, few years later, um, it was the summer between my junior and senior year in college. And I, had, I was going to work at a, a Christian camp for this summer. And uh, to fill in a little bit of the backstory, my junior year of college, um, was kind of a mess relationally, a lot of relational and friendship and just different issues. And, and, and I, was, I was kind of at a point where I was done with it. Like I was, I was tired of being disappointed with people. And I realize probably none of you have ever felt that way, but I was done. And I was like, it's, it's too hard. It's too much. It's too painful. And I'm tired of getting hurt. And so I decided since I was going to work at this camp for the summer, I didn't know anyone there. And I decided that I would, I would not necessarily be who I typically was. I was not going to make any friends. I was not going to have any long-term relationships. And I would just go and I would serve Jesus because I wasn't giving up on Jesus. I just gave up on people. And so I was, I was gonna go and I was gonna do my job, do it well, but I wouldn't open myself up because I didn't want to get hurt and I didn't trust people. So I went and I was there a week early because there was a week of leadership training. And so there was a, maybe a group of maybe 20, 25 of us. And uh, so we went through the week and I didn't offer anyone anything 
of note to, to want to be around me. Like I wasn't, I wasn't a jerk, but I wasn't, I wasn't funny. I wasn't engaging. I wasn't like open. And, I, and, and at the end of that week, that weekend, I drove back to my parents' house because we had an extended weekend break and then we were coming back and that's when we, we started camp. And, and I was driving on the freeway back, back, uh, back to my parents' house and it was about a, about a three, three and a half hour drive. And I'll never forget the moment in my car. I was listening, some of you might remember this. I was listening to the uh, Newsboys rendition of Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. That was playing. And, and what hit me, God, it was so clear. It was like this, the Spirit said, said to me, so how is this plan gonna work out for you? You've decided that you're just not, you're not gonna be relationally open or vulnerable. And that's fine. But what have you experienced this past week? And what I experienced was people cared about me and loved me in spite of what I offered them. It was like the Holy Spirit, like just as clear as day said, you are welcome to do that and you probably will keep yourself from getting hurt by other people. But if you do that, you're gonna miss what I have to give you. If you choose to open yourself up and trust me, you will get hurt again but you'll also be able to receive what I have for you. And at that point, I had pulled over because I probably shouldn't be driving at that point in traffic. And I was just overwhelmed with a sense of God's goodness. So as Paul prayed, know God better. I knew God better because I started to understand his goodness, not just to me, but, but to all people. And I'm really glad that I made a decision not to go with my plan and to obey God because um, I met someone that summer, which was cool. So her name was Sherry, but that's a different story. Um, <laughs> and then the third, the third moment that I remember is a little bit more recent. It's in this last season of kind of what we've experienced in, in, in life. I think it, it, was, it was this kind of growing thing that became much more clear for me. And it was this, that God hit me in this moment that most of my life, I have obeyed Jesus adjacent things rather than actually Jesus himself. And you can be Forgiven and Jesus can be your savior and you can spend the rest of your life obeying Jesus adjacent things and that's fine. I don't think that necessitates a well done my uh, good and faithful servant, but you can be a Christian and obey Jesus adjacent things because those are good things. But what hit me was that what Jesus wants me to obey is his primary command to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of, the Jesus, of Jesus, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded.
primarily the first thing he commanded, which was to make disciples. And I think my Jesus-adjacent things in my life have been that uh, Jesus is my savior and I can still have everything that I want and all those things tend to get in the way of the big thing that Jesus has asked me to do because he's already called me. I'm already an heir in his kingdom and he's given me power to accomplish those things. And so it was the call to die to myself and die to the world and live for the glory of Christ. And that's changed everything for me as of late. You see, our hope is built on the fact that the tomb is empty and Jesus is reigning right now. And what I love about that is that the tomb remains empty whether we experience great success in life and and obedience and godliness, but the tomb is also empty when we fail and we feed our flesh instead of surrendering to the spirit. My behavior does not affect the empty tomb. My life's behavior does not affect Jesus reigning as savior and king and Lord. I love the uh, prayer that's associated with the third week of Lent. It says, Almighty God, you know that we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. Keep us both outwardly in our bodies and inwardly in our souls that we may be defended from all adversities which may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts which may assault and hurt our soul. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you, God, and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever, amen. That's just such a simple and true statement. And so this morning, uh, we're, we're gonna take communion together, but as, as we take communion I would, I would challenge you to think about those moments in your life that have some clarity, where, where God met you where you were at. And, and if you can't remember those moments, because I know they're there, maybe ask the Spirit to clarify those moments in your life. Because it's those moments oftentimes when we know God better, we know his character, we know his faithfulness, we know his closeness. And I think the bottom line is what is keeping me, what is keeping you from dying to myself and the world and living in the power that Jesus has given us for his glory? And so really communion is the result, is a reminder and the result of Jesus as savior making it possible for us to actually know God the way that he wants 
us to know him personally and intimately and deeply. And so when Jesus was with his disciples, he, he took that bread and, and, and basically what he said was, this is my body that's gonna be broken for you because I am your savior. And when I perform the function of savior, you will be able to know God. And you'll be able to know God deeply and widely and boldly. He invited his disciples, those who love him and surrendered to him, to take and eat of it. And then Jesus took the cup. And being the only one who actually could accomplish the task of being savior, but would require him to, to shed his blood. He said to his disciples, this blood, the blood of the new covenant, which gives you access to God through me. And when we drink this together, we are corporately reminded that we have access to God because of where we sit. Where do you sit? You sit in the security of Jesus at God's right hand, even now. And there's nothing that can remove you from that spot. And so Jesus invited his disciples, those who were surrendered to him, to take and drink. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that you are savior. I thank you for what you did. God, I even think about my own experience of having a limit of disappointment with people or hurt from people. Yet Jesus, you knew from the moment that you began that people would deeply disappoint you and not just hurt you, but crucify you. But Jesus, you chose the pathway of humility and vulnerability and sacrifice and suffering so that I could know God. So could I, I could know him not just with my mind or information, but with my heart and my motivations, my emotions, the whole of my being. So I pray this morning that we would know you and that we would recognize that knowing you impacts every single part of our life, the good and the bad, the hidden and the seen. And that we would lift one another up, praying that we would through the revelation of the Holy Spirit in our lives, know God the Father and his goodness and his character and his holiness and his justice and his mercy and his righteousness and all those things. And God, that we would experientially know the Father, that he would reveal himself to us in those moments of normal life that he speaks. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Thank you.